Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Ministries International. We value the Word of God as an instrument of growth in our lives, using it to mend our ways, align our thinking, and ultimately bring restoration. We trust that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Then today, I suppose I need to say to you, Christos Anesti, because it is Greek Easter today. Uh, and following on from last week, last week we, I'm sure all of us, uh, in our gatherings, we considered the, the message of Easter or the Passover in our, in our alone times, in our quiet times, in our times of devotion, we would have taken time to remember, to remember Jesus, to remember the sacrifice. And I think... I, while I don't necessarily want to, 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 to rehash the Easter message today, I think we can very often sort of glance over things and, all right, that happened and we're grateful and we've kind of ticked that box and just move on with life as normal. Um, but what is the response that we should have to the Easter message is kind of what I want to, I want to share with talk about today. Um, and when I say response, I mean not so much what should we now do as in some kind of active thing. But Easter, the message of the cross and Jesus' resurrection, it affects us. It ought to affect us. It does something to us deep within. It causes us to reconsider our own state, our own well-being, our own values. And I think most of all, it causes us to consider our attitudes. We can... We can go through life being pretty ungrateful, feeling pretty sorry for ourselves until we remember what Jesus has done. We can go through our lives feeling quite entitled, quite self-righteous perhaps, until we remember what Jesus has done. And so now that we've considered those things, and I trust the Lord in one way or another has ministered to each of you in your heart during this journey. I was blessed by one of my favorite portions of scripture just in meditating for what to share today with what Paul encourages us to do. And that is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. I'm going to read it from the New King James Version. Because we all know that, that the message of the cross and the message of baptism into this new life in Christianity, that the message we've embraced is that when Jesus hung on the cross, my sin hung there with him. My past, my identity hung there with him. It died with him and it resurrected again. And I now live my life not in that old identity, but in a new identity in Christ. I have a new reality. I'm a new creation. Christ now lives in me. So what ought my attitude or my perspective to be? And this is what Paul is talking about here. And he says this, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Some, some translations say, uh, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be held onto, but he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, Jesus went from the place of preeminence of being one with God to being submissive to his own creation, even to the point of being subject to his own creation, being subjected to death by his own creation. But yet as a result of, the, of, of his willingness to do that, God has highly exalted him. So when Paul says, let this mind, let this way of thinking be in you as it was in Christ Jesus, the question I have is, what is this mind? What is this attitude? What is this framework? And for me, the essence of it, it could be many things, by the way, but for me, the essence of this is the attitude or the spirit of genuine humility. Genuine humility. Genuine humility is what enables you and I to see the value in others. And based on the value we see in others, we are willing to lay down our own agendas to serve them, to assist them, even at our own expense. It was this incredible humility that caused Jesus to come down, to, to strip himself of all rank, of all power, of all entitlement, of all authority. And he came down at his own expense to help and assist you and I. Humility is a state of heart. It's a, it's a mindset. It's an attitude that is based on the truth of who you are and who I am in the light of who God is. I always, when I speak on this subject, I'm reminded of Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah chapter 6, where he, in the year that King Uzziah dies, he has a vision of God and he sees him in his temple, enthroned in his glory, and his robe fills the temple, and the, the, the cherubim are there, and they're shouting out, holy, holy, holy. And as he gets a revelation of God, for the first time, he gets a revelation of himself. He sees himself according to the truth, in the light of the one who is truth. The glory of God revealed to him the truth of, about himself and stripped him of all his um, excuses, stripped him of all his pre false pretenses, of all his deception, of, of all the things that he thought about himself. He realized and he saw himself accurately for the first time. And he said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So humility is not about just acknowledging all the bad things about myself, but it's about having an accurate estimation of myself that liberates me and frees me up from the opinions of others. It's not self-defamation, as though uh, humility is not, is not saying, oh, I have nothing to contribute, I have no value, I have nothing that is noteworthy. No, that is false humility, that is a lie, that is just, uh, that is inverted pride, you see, the fact is that Christ died for you, and therefore you have value. You have the same value as every other created person on this earth, because Christ died for everyone. And that is the value he ascribes to your life. You have gifts, and that means that you have the potential to be influential. You have breath, and that means you have the ability to sow seeds of love. You have the ability to speak words of life and encouragement, no matter who you are. So humility is not to simply think poorly of yourself, 
It is the skill of not having an overinflated or even a deflated view of yourself in relation to others. Humility is the opposite of pride. It's the very antithesis of what pride is. You see, where humility is founded upon the truth, pride is founded upon deception. In its very beginning, you look at the enemy, you look at Lucifer, uh, and it's in the book of Ezekiel, it says how he said, I will make myself like the Most High. I will be like him, and I will ascend to the highest place. I will, I, I, me, the, this is what I can do. This is what I will do. And it was measured according to somebody else. It's not that I want to be better at being myself. I want to be a better me. No, no, no. I want to be better than him. I want to be above him. And he, he played the same game with Eve in the Garden of Eden. He came in as the serpent and he said, you know, Eve, that, that, that tree, you know, I honestly believe, folks, I believe that when God placed Adam and Eve in that garden and he said, you can eat from all the trees except that one. A lot of people say, you know, as soon as you tell somebody not to do something, that's exactly what they want to do. I don't, I don't believe that of Adam and Eve. I really don't. If any of you came to my house and I said to you, oh, you're welcome. You know, you can sit anywhere. Just please don't sit in that seat. We've actually just had it painted. Um, so please don't, don't sit in that chair. You'd be like, sure, no problem. Thanks for letting me know. And you'd carry on and it would be a non-issue. And I think that that tree was a non-issue for Adam and Eve. They had so much. They were grateful for it. They didn't question why God would say to them, don't eat from it. He just said, if you eat that tree, you're going to die. So don't do it. And they went, that's great advice. Thank you. And I think they carried on living their life until deception entered the scene. And, and the enemy came in and he said, you know what? God's actually holding out on you. What do you mean he's holding out on us? He said, that tree. You know, that seat that Michael doesn't want you to sit on, he actually doesn't want you to sit on that chair because that's his favorite chair. And he is trying to get it to contour to the, to the, to the shape of his body, and he doesn't want you messing up a good thing for him. He's actually being completely selfish in this. He's trying to deprive you of the cushiest seat in the house. Did you know that that chair has a button, and when you push it, it will massage your back and your tuchus? It is the best chair that there ever has been. And he began to sell this, sell this thing to them, saying, no, 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 no. If you eat of that tree, you're going to become like him, knowing good and evil. And they went, wow. And therein is the lie. Because the truth is, Adam and Eve were already created in God's image. They were more of God's image than, than the enemy was, than Lucifer was. He was selling them a lie. And unfortunately, they bought it. And this is what, what pride does. It, 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 it makes me feel like I'm losing out on something. And when you contrast that with, with what we read about Jesus earlier on in the book of Philippians, it said he wasn't trying to hold on to it. He had everything. And he wasn't even trying to hold on to it. He had nothing to prove. So a humble person has nothing to hide and also has nothing to prove. Somebody who is truly humble is willing to acknowledge his weaknesses and his shortcomings. This is where I struggle. These are my weaknesses. And I'm mentioning them because, you know what? You can actually see them. <laughs> you know them. We're just all too polite to say anything. A humble person also, has, like I said, they've got nothing to prove. So often I, I hear of people, and I just want to prove myself. I want to prove to those other people who said I couldn't do it. I want to prove. You can, I've got nothing to prove. You've got nothing to prove. You're a child of God. What do you have to prove? 
There is nothing for a humble person to prove because he is not absorbed with the arduous task of self-preservation or of perception management. He is liberated from the opinions of others because he has discovered the truth. He knows the truth, just like Isaiah. And what is the truth? The truth is that indeed, without Christ, I am a worm. I am sinful. I am nothing. The Bible says that our righteousnesses to him are as filthy rags. In other words, the best I have to bring to God is not good enough. It cannot compare to who he is. It is not worthy of a mention. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't feature. And so because of that, you know, a prideful person will, will, will try to play down their weaknesses and their shortcomings. They will try to portray an image to, 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 to manage the perceptions of others that he would be well thought of. But you see, a truly humble person knows that all his favor, all his grace, anything that is good within him comes from the Lord. That's what the apostle says. The apostle Paul writes, in me dwells no good thing apart from the Lord. He placed no confidence in his flesh. And therefore, he had no pressure to perform. Because he had nothing to prove. You see, what pride does is it causes us to seek validation. And this is why insecurity is simply inverted pride. You see, so often we dress insecurity up in the box and we tie a nice ribbon around it and we call it humility. That's not humility at all. Insecurity is not humility. Humility is simply inverted pride. It is somebody who is looking for validation and is not content or does not feel good about themselves until they find it. It's somebody who is torn apart when somebody doesn't think favorably about them or doesn't like their ideas. No, no, no. True humility requires no validation. It is secure in itself. This is the life of Jesus. Jesus had nothing to prove to anyone. He, he, it's as though he lived life on his own terms because he lived life on God's terms. The other person that I really like, you know, when it comes to humility is, is Numbers 12. It says that now the man Moses, Numbers 12, verse 3, and this is after his time in the wilderness. He says, was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Now, the irony of that statement is that it was written by Moses. And you would think the way we think of humility is like, well, that's he's very proud of his humility there. Isn't that's a little conceited, wouldn't you say? But no, Moses had an accurate understanding of himself. He knew and he had come to terms with his weaknesses. And he was and he had also, I believe, in some sense, come to terms with God's strength. And after trying things on his own and having to be, you know, pushed away to the backside of the desert for 40 years and then not wanting to get involved or do anything and having God lead him and do all of these things for him, he came to realizations about God and in so doing, he came to realizations about himself. And this is a very true statement. He was so intimate with God that truly he was the most humble man on the face of the earth at that time because he knew that everything he was and everything he accomplished was because of God. He didn't even initiate it. God did. Moses was acutely aware of who he was in the light of who God was. And this is the same truth that Jesus walked in. This is the same truth that we see Paul walking in. And this is what he is calling you and I into. You see, the greatest travesty of pride is this. 
As long as we are focused on our own reputations and on our own well-being, we are not free to follow the leading of the Lord. We are still captive to the opinions of men. We are still captive to our opinions of ourselves and even of others. But this is, however, where so many believers are still stuck. We believe that our acceptance within a social framework, that our value within a group, and even our promotion in a workplace or in a church or in a family or in any situation in terms of rank, that our promotion are dependent upon others and their opinions. We've got to please the boss so that he will promote us. We can't cheese this person off. We've got to walk on eggshells there and we've got to mind our P's and Q's there and we can't do this and we can say that. And we're so mindful of, of, of everybody else. Now, listen, there's room for that in the Bible. The Bible tells us to consider our brothers, not to offend them, to consider the scruples of the weak. And yes, we need to be considerate of other people. That is true. But when we are so considerate of other people that we are no longer free to be ourselves and to act on the convictions that God places on our hearts, folks, then we're captives to them. We've gone way beyond what, what is consideration. We've gone to, have, to being slaves. And this kind of thinking shows us that we've lost sight of the truth, that we need others' approval for promotion, for gain, to, pro, to, 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 to move forward and to grow in life. Psalm 75 verses 6 and 7 says this, and I love the way the Passion Translation says it because it, it, it really sums it up so beautifully. It says, this I know, the favor that brings promotion and power doesn't come from anywhere on earth. For no one exalts a person but God, the true judge of all. He alone determines where favor rests. He anoints one for greatness and brings another down to his knees. That is amazing. What a powerful and a true scripture. So in other words, I need to orientate my expectation to the right place. If I'm looking for man, for a boss, or for a situation to be my promotion, I'm looking in the wrong place. Because wherever I look to for promotion, for growth, for leading and guidance becomes my Lord. I become subject to that. But if I want Jesus to be my Lord, all I need to do is continue to obey him where it is that he's placed me to continue to do and to be who he's called me to be in the sphere of influence that he has given me. Not trying to promote myself, not trying to, you know, get one up on the next person, just simply being faithful and being obedient, knowing and trusting that in due season. He will cause promotion to come. And here is the question, on what basis does God decide who to promote and who to bring low? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 7. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. What does submit mean? <laughs> that means be in subjection to them. In other words, let them speak into your life. Let them help you. Let them coach you along the way. And then he goes on to say, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but what does he give grace to? The humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Now you say, Michael, you've just been talking about being free and not being subject to anybody, you know, so that you can be led by the Lord. And now you're talking about serving other people. 
Folks, to serve the Lord means to serve other people. We have lost the definition of what ministry means. Now, the difference lies in the fact of the motivation of why I'm serving other people. Pride calls me to serve somebody else for my own personal promotion. It is concerned with self. Genuine humility causes me to serve somebody else for their benefit and their benefit alone, even at my expense. Isn't that the very essence of what Jesus did? Isn't that what we just celebrated last week? Yes, both are being subject to somebody else. Both include superintendent. But the one is aimed at a person who I'm trying to please so that they can think well of me or promote me or not think badly of me at the very least. The other is aimed directly at God. The other is aimed at catching his heart for those around me, catching his love and being so free from what others may think of me that I am able to act according to his will and act according to his love. This verse tells us that pride literally cuts us off from the grace of God. Jeremiah in the Old Covenant says it in a slightly different way. Jeremiah 17, I'll read to you from verse 5 to 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Now what does that word cursed mean? I don't believe this word cursed, especially in this kind of context, means some kind of spell that's being cast on you. I believe that the blessing of God and the presence of God are synonymous. Where the presence of God is, there is blessing. There is divine favor and grace and, and, and mercy available. And where the blessing of God is, there the presence of God is. They go together, hand in hand. I believe that the, you and I were, were created to function within the ambit of God's presence and his blessing. God created Adam and Eve. He blessed them and then he commissioned them. The curse is that they were separated from that very presence. The blessing was no longer working for them. And so now everything that they put their hand to encountered resistance. And that is the work of the enemy. So cursed is the man who trusts in man. In other words, those who trust in man will not walk in the favor and the blessing and the grace of God. They will experience resistance every step of the way. It doesn't mean that they won't necessarily make progress towards their goal, but it will be hard. It will be having to fight tooth and nail. It will be dog eat dog. I've got to beat this guy so that I can get the deal. It's, it, that's what that kind of life looks like. And who makes flesh his strength and whose heart departs from the Lord. And by the way, this life also has no eternal glory in it. There is no blessing in it. There is no reward for, for this kind of person. This kind of person shall be like a shrub in the desert. It shall not even see when good comes. In other words, it can't even perceive, perceive good times and blessings. We'll miss the opportunities. But shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. So his confidence is not in himself. His confidence is not in what others can do for him. But his confidence is in the Lord and in the Lord alone, whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river. And will not fear when heat comes. Why? 
His leaf will be green and he will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will he cease from yielding fruit because he trusts in the Lord and he has made the Lord his hope. You see, humility does not leave you and I in a place of weakness. Jesus, when he gave up all his power and all his glory and he came to earth as a little baby, we see him in a position and a place of weakness. Humility is what enables you and I to tap into a power that is beyond ourselves, the very grace of God. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is the attitude that positions us for usefulness within the kingdom of God. God is the one who lifts up, who exalts, and he uses the humble. And this is the prerequisite, therefore, to being used by God. We all desire a life that, 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 that has more fruit for the Lord. But for that to take place, we need to understand that we cannot produce fruit in our own human effort. Not the kind of fruit that God desires. Oh, we can do a lot of stuff. We can do a lot of works just like Martha did. But that doesn't produce everlasting life, not in us, nor in others. It's this idea of being, of realizing this very truth. That no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I work, I cannot do anything of eternal significance for the kingdom in my own strength, in my own ability. It is this realization that causes me to open up my heart and look to God and acknowledge just how much I need him. I can't afford to go a day without him because that's going to be a day wasted. There's a testimony of Andrew Murray, who was a, a, a missionary and and a pastor in a town called Wellington here in Cape Town at the turn of the, uh, the at the turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s. And there's a story of him once he became quite well known, where he was walking down the main street of the town of Wellington, and suddenly he stopped in in on the pavement, and somebody came up to him and said, uh, "Reverend Murray, is everything all right?" And he says, "Yes, thank you. Everything is fine. I just lost the sense of God's presence for a moment, and I didn't want to take another step until I'd gotten it back." He had—he was a man who realized how destitute he was without the grace and without the presence of God. That is a spirit of true humility. I don't know about you. One of my big grapples is that I—I—I I, I become comfortable in my ability. I can sing songs. I can lead worship on the guitar. I can do that in the flesh. I can do that without God. Let's be truthful. Let me put it this way. I can sing songs without God, and I can lead people in singing songs without God, but I can't lead worship without Him. I can't create that. I can't touch people's hearts. I can't make those words sink deep. We are utterly dependent on God for that. I can give a speech. You know, our, we, we have so much available to us now, so much good public speaking. So much really gifted people who speak well. But without the grace of God, without God breathing on what is being said, it doesn't matter. It all falls to the ground. It has no temporal or eternal significance. Folks, I don't know about you, but, you know, maybe I'm, I'm just over 40. Maybe it's a midlife, you know, these midlife crisis things. I don't want to live a life that it just falls to the floor. I want to live a life that has eternal, meaningful impact for the glory of God. I want to live a life that means something. And I realize that as much as I can do 
it all means nothing without God. It all means nothing. It, it's I can make a name for myself. I can go and you know use my gifts if I wanted to. Who knows what I could do? But it it wouldn't mean anything if it's all just for me. If it's all just for fame. And I believe this is what it really means to let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And 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 Jesus himself goes on to explain this and to to expound on this attitude and this way of thinking. Let me read you a few more portions of scripture. Number one from Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 27. Again, I'm reading from the Passion Translation. Luke 22, 24 to 27. It says the disciples bickered over which one of them would be considered the greatest in the kingdom. And here we just see it, jockeying for position. And Jesus interrupts their argument, says this, kings, and men of authority in this world rule oppressively over their subjects. You're fighting over who can do that in essence, claiming that they do it for the good of the people. They're obsessed with how others see them. This is politics. But this is not your calling. And I want to say to you today, no matter where you are, whether it's in a family situation, whether it's in a workplace, whether it's in a friendship circle, uh, whatever place it is, this is not your calling. Jockeying for position is not what you are called to do. Worrying about the opinions of how you are perceived by other people is not what you are called to do because your promotion doesn't come from them. Your influence doesn't come from them. Jesus says you will lead by a different model. You will lead, but by a different model. The greatest one among you will live as one called to serve others without honor without recognition. Luke 7 speaks of a servant that goes out and does his work and comes in uh, at the end of the day and, 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 and it says, you know, should the master say, well done? You've done such a great job in the field. No, you've done what's required. You don't need any honor. The greatest honor and authority, Jesus says, is reserved for the one who has a servant heart. Leaders who are served are the most important in your eyes, but in the kingdom, it is the servants who lead. Am I not here as one who serves? Jesus asks them. Isn't that an incredible question? So he, he, he points out the contrast to them and he says, even myself, I'm not here. I'm not here to, I don't lord things over you. He says also in Mark 10, 45, even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And of course, we see this image in Jesus laying his life down for us, but we also see it at the Last Supper before he died, where the room was prepared, they arrived, and nobody had, had taken or remembered to, to, to organize the servant for the customary job task, menial task of washing the feet of the guests. By the way, the Jews didn't do this for each other. This was reserved for Samaritans. This was reserved for the lowest of the low. You know, we get we don't get our feet washed by our equals. We certainly don't get them washed by our superiors. No, no, no. This is for those. This is for the rubbish. This is for those who don't matter. They are our servants. We keep them down there by letting them do these menial tasks. And yet Jesus himself in their midst, takes off his garment, strips himself down to his loincloth. He grabs the towel, he grabs the bowl, and he begins to wash their feet. 
And from verse 12 in John 13, it says, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do it, do them. And there we have that, that inference of blessing once again, that the one who is willing to adopt this attitude, that is willing to take on the mind of Christ, will walk and live their lives in a, in a realm of blessing and favor where the presence of God is tangible. They're able to see and to sense the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit because they carry the humility that identifies his voice. It is humility that enables us to hear God's voice. Many people say, I can't hear God's voice. There's a good reason for that because you're too fixated on your own opinions. You're not willing to let go of them yet. Therefore, you cannot receive the leading of the Lord. Your heart is wrapped around all kinds of other things. And until you're willing to let go of that, to be absolutely honest about yourself in his presence and allow him to heal that, to deal with that, to forgive that, you're not going to hear his voice. You're just not ready for it. You see, Jesus, because Jesus had nothing to prove, he was willing to do the most menial of tasks and to serve the basic needs of others. He was not fixated on himself. Therefore, he was free. He was free to demonstrate God's love without worrying that it would tarnish his reputation. And folks, let's be honest. If anything, in that moment, through that action, he only enhanced his reputation. He wasn't trying to do it. That wasn't, that wasn't the point of the exercise. But that act was so different. It really made an impression. It made them sit up and take notice. Folks, without genuine humility, we talk about love, but without genuine humility, we can't love. Without genuine humility, we cannot have empathy or compassion on the people around us. This is, this is how Jesus, we often talk about the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. All of these were built upon the foundation of his humility, having an accurate understanding of himself, an accurate estimation. He didn't think too highly of himself, not that he could have, and he didn't think too lowly of himself. Therefore, he was free, nothing to prove, nothing to defend. You see, only true love and true empathy leads to action. A truly humble person is an unoffendable person. The people said awful things to Jesus. They literally crucified him. And yet on the cross, what is he saying? Forgive them, Father. For in their pride, they don't know what they're doing. He didn't use those exact words. I'm paraphrasing. But it, it encompasses them. They don't know who they truly are because they don't know who I truly am. So God, they're, they're deceived. They are jockeying for position. They are fighting for power. This is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were doing. They were caught up in their jostling and their wrestling for pride, for power, for perception, for status, for significance. Their insecurities causing them to make decisions that ultimately sent our Lord to the cross.
And yet Jesus remains unoffendable. He's not offended by it. He just says, Father, forgive them. You see, we get offended when we don't feel as though we're being treated according to our estimations of ourselves. And we allow these offenses to justify our, our lack of genuine empathy and love. These are, these are, the, these are the, the telltale signs that within our hearts still lurk the effects of pride. These are the telltale signs that say humility has not truly taken root or heart. There's, in other words, there's still areas in my life where I've not embraced humility in a certain situation. Let me read you just, one, just a couple more verses, a few more exhortations from Paul. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 11 says this. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. <laughs> That's why I said earlier on, you know, True humility, without genuine humility, you, we cannot genuinely love. Why? Because we can say, I love you, and we can, we can affirm to fuzzies, but true humility is the only stuff that takes us beyond intention into sincere action. It was when, the, when Jesus was feeding the 5,000. I'm, I'm digressing from this verse, but it's the point. I just feel I need to harp on for a little bit. When Jesus was feeding the five, before he fed the 5,000, he, he and his disciples were actually getting away to try and rest. They hadn't eaten for, we don't quite know how long, but it says for ages. Um, that if, Mark 6, 31 to 34, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place, rest for a while, uh, for there were many coming and going. And they did not even have time to eat. And so they departed to a deserted place in a boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them and, and many came and ran on foot from all the cities. And they arrived before them and came together. And Jesus, when he came out, saw the multitude. And instead of going, guys, we're trying to get away from it. We just need a break. I need some alone time. He didn't do that. What happened? When Jesus came out, he saw the multitude and he was moved with compassion for them. And he didn't just feel sorry for them. He was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began again to teach them, to lay down his comfort, to lay down his spare time to teach them. And we know the result. He also fed them. So let's go back to Romans 12, 9 to 11. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. That's very, for a humble, that, that, that's the essence of humility. God, you say that is good. I'm going to cling to that. You say that is not good. I'm just not going to eat from that tree. I don't propose to know better than you. Love each other with genuine affection. Now, wherever you are in your rooms, please say the word affection. Because some of us really struggle with this word, <laughs> especially us guys. We are not naturally affectionate. But Paul here is saying, love one another with genuine affection. Sometimes that's a pat on the back and an arm around the shoulder saying, how's a foot? Sometimes that's just a word of encouragement but it's deliberate. You cannot love someone with genuine affection passively. Love with genuine affection. 
and take delight in honoring each other. Not yourself, not defaming the other person so that you look better. Take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each one esteem others better than himself. What does that mean? Everyone's better than me? That means I'm worse than everybody? No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying do not have an overinflated opinion of yourself. Think of others better than you think of yourself. In other words, consider them. Uh, consider their interests. He goes on to say, to expound on that, he said, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. This to me is what I believe it means to have the mind of Christ. That didn't consider it's his privileges, things to be clung to, but was willing to make himself of no reputation. No reputation. No title, no status, but simply to come and to serve, to help us, to reach out to us. By the way, while we were hostile to him, while we were crucifying him, while we were rebellious towards him. And that is the mind that God calls you and I to embrace so that we can be that Christ to the world around us. You know, folks, I believe that that is the message of Easter made practical to you and to me today. That is the message, this heart and the spirit of humility is the message that enables you and I to walk in obedience, that enables you and I to walk in the fear of the Lord, because that is what humility is. It's the fear of the Lord. It's what enables us to lay hold of the grace and, and, and the divine ability of God to lead us and to work through us to do things that we cannot do no matter how hard we try. It opens us up to be led by the Spirit of God, to see things in other people that cannot be seen with the naked eye. God says, you look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And those who are truly humble have an incredible way of being so tolerant. They're incredibly gracious towards the rough exteriors of people. Somehow they're able to see through all of that and to see a heart behind it that may be hurting, that may be in need of some brotherly affection, that may be in need of the gifts that God has given you and I to carry. So my hope in what I've shared with you today is that this message of Easter, this message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, this message of the new life that lives within us, with all the wonderful benefits and the inheritance that comes with it, will be cocooned and recradled and allow us to assess and re-evaluate our own hearts and our own attitudes, re-evaluate where it is we're placing our expectations, re-evaluate the weight we place on the opinions of other people, re-evaluate where we are looking to for growth or promotion, Perhaps reevaluate why it is that we're doing what we're doing in the first place. Is it being motivated by a spirit of true and genuine humility, or is there something else in it? I think as we do this, we allow God to begin bringing us deeper 
bringing us closer to that heart attitude that Christ desires for you and I to walk in every single day. So let me just close in a word of prayer as, um, as I've just shared these things and say, Father, Lord God, we are so grateful that you, through your son Jesus, have made us your sons and daughters and that you are our dad. The almighty God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is the one we get to call Abba. And Lord, as we sit in your presence in this moment, we acknowledge that that is not because we have been such wonderful people and you've you wanted to have us in your family. No, God, we were wretched. We were lost. We were broken. But yet because of your great love, you paid the ransom for our sin. You paid the price, Lord Jesus, yourself, that we could be made sons and daughters of God. We acknowledge we haven't earned the status, Lord. We acknowledge that it's all because of your grace. And we thank you for it in this moment, Lord. And Lord Jesus, as we've, as we've considered your thinking, your attitude in coming down from heaven and presencing yourself among us in the form of a man, as we consider the lengths that your love went to, we are in awe, Lord God of the humility that you displayed. You were not subject to the opinions of people. Nobody took your life from you. You laid it down freely because of your love and because of your great humility. And Lord, as we've, as we've shared these thoughts today, Father God, I pray that you would help us sift through our own hearts, our own motives, our own intentions. So often we get caught up in the run of the mill things. And so much of that run of the mill stuff is about being the best. It's about being better than the next person. It's being thought of in a particular way. And Father God, I want to pray that, that this message tonight, I want to pray that you would set us free from all of those kinds of pursuits. Help us, Lord God, to realize that all you want from us is to love you and to love other people. And that as we do that, and as we walk in obedience to that love and into your word, my Lord God, promotion comes from you. Grace and blessing and favor come from you as we allow you to walk and to work in the midst of our daily lives. And so, Father, where we have trusted in men, where we have trusted in our own abilities, Lord, I ask you today, would you forgive us? Lord, we want to repent. We want to acknowledge in your presence the reality that nothing we have, nothing we can do can carry any eternal value apart from you. And I want to pray, Lord God, that you would help us. Not just today, but tomorrow as we go into our week. To keep our eyes and our expectation glued to you. To, to, to look for your promptings and your unctions. To be servants in the midst of the situations and the spheres that you've given us. To, to use our gifts to be of influence, to lead and to serve. Lord, as, as we've heard tonight, the greatest in your kingdom are those who are willing to lay it all down to serve and to show love to others. And Lord, while we're not after titles of being the greatest, we want to pray, Lord God, that you would help us to recognize those opportunities and to take them so that through them, your name may be glorified, so that through them, the seeds of your kingdom may be sown into the lives of others.
that they may produce fruit, not just into this in this life, but on into eternity. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for the fact that you were willing to lay down your life for us. And thank you that our greatest act of worship is to simply do the same for you. So I bless you for this, this, this time together. I bless you for the considerations that are rolling around our hearts and minds. And I pray that you would breathe over the seed, that it would produce an abundant harvest of liberty and freedom from the opinions of others, and that you would enable us to live life boldly under the guidance of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For additional resources or more information about this ministry, come and visit us at alphaomegaint.org.za.